1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Although the season is two-thirds complete, four games still remain for the Gators to finish out strong. So Dan Mullen spent this week ensuring everyone was on the same page and holding on to the proverbial rope. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the aftermath of Florida, Georgia, the turnover challenges plaguing the Gators, the manageable road ahead, men's basketball's public debut, and memorable exotic trips around the world in the PAT. Then, recent Florida Georgia Hall of Fame inductee Kiwan Ratliff takes us through his incredible Gator career and how his post-NFL life brought him back to Gainesville. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Guys, let's get our roundtable started by talking a little bit of Florida, Georgia. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I don't think the game went Initially, the way that people thought it would, Florida really hung in the game early. Uh, the defense stepped up, made some big plays that they you know weren't making for a lot of the season. Um, but ultimately, you look at the final score and you think, oh well, that's what everyone expected. But the way that it got there didn't quite play out as, as most people thought it would. But ultimately, Georgia just so strong in every phase. The mistakes really compounded themselves, and, and the game went from being very close to basically over in
0: literally a, a blink of an eye. Yeah, it was like a in the old days when Mike, died, Mike Tyson boxed and he was good he'd get into the ring with somebody. A couple of punches, the guy would be on the floor. <laughs> it, it took a <laughs> couple of rounds in this in this game, but that's what kind of happened, Adam. You know, it, it was self-inflicted. I mean, let's face it, the Gators, I give them credit. I still remember tweeting right before the disaster struck, hey, Gators, if they can keep this 3 nothing here in the final three minutes and go into halftime, that's a big win for them. And then, of course, little did I know what was coming, the uh, you know the interception, having to start deep in your own territory. Uh, Anthony Richardson showing that, yes, he is a redshirt, inexperienced quarterback. Um, and Georgia, let's face it, they're too good to give them 21 points like that. Uh, you knew the game was over. I think a lot of Gator fans who left the stadium to go party in the parking lot realized the game was over. It was a long afternoon for the Gators, and now, you know, it serves as a wake up call. I think when you're four and four at Florida, that's uh, a big wake up call. And now the only thing they can do is try to bounce back and win these last four games and end the season on some momentum, guys.
2: Yeah, the final stats said the turnovers were three to three, but um, anyone who watched the game, so the Florida's turnovers were uh, much louder and much more debilitating. I mean, one of them is an in- interception in the end zone. The guy runs out to the two yard line. Three plays later is a is a is a a strip sack or excuse me a a strip fumble and a one play drive. Then there was I think four plays later Anthony Richardson tip ball interception one play drive thirty five yard touchdown now seventeen to nothing. And then the next one, a couple plays later, is a pick six. The second week in a row, the Gators uh, have had a pick six. Two weeks before that, it was LSU. It was four turnovers to zero, and they were allowed turnovers then, too. They put LSU in position to uh, – to, people were saying, no, it was the rush defense. It was the rush defense at LSU. Couldn't stop the run, couldn't stop the run. Well, when you keep turning the ball over, the defense keeps has, has to keep going out on the field. So, uh, uh, and the defense is struggling. The defense, you don't want the defense on the field. So, um, the Gators got to stop turning the ball over at them, And they got to stop turn- doing it this week. Uh, that's, the fir- that's the first order of business for this team, uh, for Coach Dan Mullen. Uh, in addition to, obviously, this is a foxhole game, man. Uh, they got to kind of get in there. Obviously, uh, they started the week. Um, you yeah, know, Mullen kind of shut everything down media wise to, to focus on playing this game. It's an SEC East game. I think, uh, if you listen to the fans right now, if you listen to the players, if they were able to talk, um, they would be talking about, they, you know, they, they need to win the rest of their games. They, they, they got two more conference games. Uh, they have a game against Samford. And of course they got the season ender against Florida state, which, I mean, that's going to be a huge game. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be in the swamp. People are going to be excited about that game. So uh, um, the 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 task at hand is pretty clear. Um, this team wants to finish eight and four. The team almost has to finish eight and four to get any kind of momentum rolling into the uh, roll into an offseason where they're going to have to uh, do some some soul searching, some rebuilding. And they have a 85 million dollar football facility that they're going to move into next off season, and that's that's a that's a talking point that can get people excited. But uh, in the interim, they got some football games to play starting this weekend in Columbia.
0: Hey guys, this is a good nugget just to follow up what Chris is saying because you look at Florida in that game and really the season, it's been about turnovers. And how's this for you guys? Georgia's allowed a total of 53 points all season the Gators and their turnovers have led to 66 points. 66 points. That's right. Wow. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty telling stat right there.
2: Yeah. And the turnover margin there right now, they're tied for 123rd in the country at at minus seven. I believe this time last week was, I believe they were 113th, I think still at minus seven. Yeah. Somewhere uh, there. But again, those, those three turnovers in that game led to 21 points and the, uh, the turnovers. I believe Florida didn't score off any of, of the three turnovers they forced against Georgia.
1: Yeah, you know one of the, one of the things that, that I find interesting about the way the season has played out is there have been a lot of moments and points where, uh, and you guys hear it, fans are upset, fans don't like what they're seeing, and then there's maybe a different tone reflected from Dan Mullen in a post game press conference, suggesting, hey, I don't know what they're talking about, that's not what I'm seeing. Um, and, and I think there was a real turning point after this Georgia game where Dan Mullen had a really different tone and tact in terms of how he addressed it. He said, basically, yeah, I see that there are problems. I know we have to fix them. It was a much different tenor in terms of the big picture. And I think that that from you know what I've heard from fans is that that was important to know that that Dan Mullen recognizes. Hey, just because you got an extra yard than Georgia in that game doesn't mean you're actually better than Georgia. You're losing games. You need to win to be a championship level program, and that has to be addressed in ways both big and small going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I think you know that's one. Point that the fans have been critical of uh, Mullen this year that, you know, kind of tone deaf, not as critical of his team after some performances as they'd like to see. And, you know, we live in an age where everything is out there. Everybody can see what happens. And uh, you can't really sugarcoat a bad performance and uh, maybe like you used to be able to do if that was your uh, mission. So I think after Georgia, I think, you know, like I said earlier, when you're in four and four, I mean, that's all the reality you need in Florida. Uh, that, you, you know, this is the, I think, fifth time they've been four and four in the modern era, if I read the other day correctly. So it doesn't happen often, but Chris and I have been around for three years. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, we've, so we've seen some four and fours. We've, us, let, we've seen some four years, and yeah. fours, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And this one certainly feels different than the other ones because I, I was like most fans out there watching or listening. I mean, I... I I kind of bought in that after that Alabama game, I I thought this team could really do something special. And, you know, it's been those critical mistakes that have prevented that. And, again, uh, they played well enough against Georgia to be in that game in the end if you don't have those critical turnovers. But that's what it could have should have, you know. So here's where we are. Uh, I think Mullen did do a better job after the the Georgia game. Uh, You know, he took some time. In the locker room, I think he, you know, took some of it on himself and told the guys basically, "Look, we're at a spot where I don't like you guys; don't like it. And the only thing we can do now is to go out and win some games to get people off our back." Essentially, and then he went out and kind of expressed that publicly, which you know he probably hasn't done as forthright as he should have had at some other points this year. But you know, all coaches are different. him. I've seen, I've seen guys who. They tell it like it is no matter how it's going, and sometimes it's almost like they're too critical when things are going right. They're nitpicking. I think we had a coach at Florida a little bit like that, right, Chris, Uh, (laughs) who told it like it was all the time. And then on the flip end of that, some guys hardly ever say anything. So we've seen it all.
2: All coaches have defense mechanisms when it comes to uh, times that that aren't going well. Uh, or after after losses, if you want, Dan Mullins is is. I mean, we we've seen what it is. He says things, and that that kind of and to Scott's point, back back in a different age, they you you wouldn't know how much they were be might might be irritating fan bases or whatever. And I think his reference obviously was to was to Steve Spur And Steve Bird used to do some complaining also, um, uh, that that got on. But he usually complained about the other team. <laughs> and, uh, and when he complained, he, they were usually like eight and one or nine and one or something. It's a lot different when you're complaining when you're four and four uh, and, and given, given some of the answers. But it doesn't change the, the current state of the situation. And it's not like he doesn't, it's not like Dan Mullen doesn't understand there are a lot of things that need to be fixed. And you can only fix what's in front of you. And right now, what's in front of them is is, is a game against South Carolina. So uh, you hope in a, a, a week from now, um, the teams, the team's five and four, and they start building towards something that ends the uh, season on with some positive momentum. And uh, uh, what was it, his first season? I think they won their last four games and took some of that momentum. Obviously, they went to a New Year's Six Bowl game, so a, the circumstances were considerably different. But uh, you did have a much better feel about the team or much uh, better feel for the team um, when, that's, when that regular season ended uh, with a home win over uh, – over Florida state. They kind of hope that's the way it's going to be this year, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself because they got to go to South Carolina. And win.
1: Well, and it is worth noting the way the schedule sets up, it, it very much saying that they want to win their last four and finish eight and four. Um, that's the most likely scenario. If you're just looking at the teams that they're playing, as we've seen, anything can happen, but in terms of setting things up to have a strong finish, I don't know that you could stack your schedule in, in a better way against a couple of one-win SEC teams in Missouri, South Carolina, an FSU team that's well below 500, uh, and then a Sanford team that you imagine would, would be pretty overmatched.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, you look, everything you said there is accurate. Uh, you know, they should win all four of these games. They're going to be favored in all four of these games. But it's it's more than really just going out and winning at them. It's, it's I mean, that is the most important thing, and that quiets that people more than anything, but. You know, they've got some things that I think they need to uh, look at closely. Obviously, the quarterback situation is front and center. I mean, I expect Emory Jones probably return to starting role this week with uh, Anthony Richardson having a concussion and obviously still waiting to get back into practice. So We don't know if he'll play on Saturday or not. But also, you want to make sure you get Richardson in a good place by the end of the season because obviously – his last game he left in a bad place. So, and then you got, you know, the defense. I mean, there's going to be some changes. I think, you know, I don't know what they are, but I think it's, it, I think it's pretty apparent at this point, there'll probably be some changes in some of the uh, staff or uh, operations after the season, I, I think, but in season, there's still things that they can do to uh, win back some favor uh, to also get some momentum and, And you got to remember the two most important weeks really between now and next season, probably are going to be those two weeks between the final game against Florida state and national signing day. So if you can somehow win these four games, set yourself up in a bowl game to talk about, you have a good selling point there to maybe turn a couple of guys back your way, who they've lost, or just get other guys interested in your program. Uh, So that's going to be critical for them. Uh, To, you know, get a good recruiting class, but also to learn more about the young guys they have now, who they feel comfortable that they can depend on in 2022 and oh, yeah, win four games. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we'll see how this uh, this last stretch here finishes,
1: but obviously a great opportunity to finish strong and, and we'll see how it goes. I want to turn our attention to, uh, instead of a program that's finishing strong, here's one that's just starting. They are pre-starting, if you will. Uh, Chris, we talked last week about men's basketball and getting ready for their first public exhibition uh, against Embry-Riddle. And I think, obviously, the biggest theme from it is lots of new faces, lots of new players. I mean, you look at the box score, too, and it's hard to find guys who were here last year embedded within all of these transfers on a team that you have dubbed team transfer tell us about the exhibition debut for team transfer
2: well team transfer I mean the first uh the starting five were all uh players that transferred here uh in the last uh three seasons and the first two players off the bench were the were were players who uh who, who have transferred here before and and frankly I think maybe even the third person that came in as uh, a as a junior college transfer, so uh, all told, there 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 are eight players that came from other schools. But uh, and that's not something that's going to be uh, unique to Florida uh, this year um, uh, or or in coming years the way college basketball is right now. But uh, to the more immediate point you're talking about, Florida beats uh, Embry Riddle in an exhibition game, 80 to 57. They didn't play well uh, in the in the first half. And then got things going in the second half. Uh, in, the, in, in the big picture, the, the the ball moved better, I think. Uh, I think there were some open shots. They just they, they, they missed some. I mean, they were four for 18 from three-point line in the first half. Um, I don't think, and I think I said this, I don't think this is going to be a, a great three-point shooting team. But uh, Myron Jones, who's is, is by far their best three point shooter, I believe he was over six from three. I don't think that's going to happen very often. Uh, conversely, uh, Brandon McKissick uh, was five for eight from the three point line. I think at one point in the second half hit four straight. Uh, Tyree Appleby, I think, is a he's a guy he's he's, he's streaky. Um, and his role right now, I mean, he was starting point guard last year uh, for, you know, when it, I guess he was playing some off the ball, too, because to, obviously uh Excuse me, Trey. Man uh, handled the ball a lot last year, but it, by definition, you would think he was the point guard. And his biggest problem was turning the ball over. His ball security was not good, which is one of the reasons that Florida had, I think, more, I think, eighty plus more um, turnovers than they had assists last season. Uh, not, not, I mean, just a just a awful, awful turnover uh, assist to turnover ratio last season, and yet still uh, made the tournament and, and advanced. If they just cut those cut some of those turnovers by a third, um, I would imagine the prospects for the season would have been much better. But obviously that's a goal this year uh, in this first exhibition game. It was 18 assists to nine turnovers. Tyree Appleby came off the bench. I think some people were surprised about that. Obviously I wasn't because I knew what was going on, but um, he had seven assists and two turnovers. He was really good energy-wise, saw some things. Some guys, he made a couple passes that he should have got assists on that were missed shots uh, in down deep. Uh, At one point, he scored seven points over 25 seconds on a couple threes. One one was a four-point play. But that's the baseline from which this team will now operate, how they played the other day. Uh, They can play better. Uh, They can play better defensively. They gave up some open shots. Season opener next week, Tuesday night against Elon, uh, a team from the Colonial Athletic Conference. So uh, after that, five days, and you play Florida State, and that will be a real litmus test that – both, the, you know, we'll find out about and both give, uh, obviously, the fans an opportunity to uh, rain down uh, uh, their venom or praise, no matter what happens. Because Florida has lost seven straight against Florida State, as everybody in the world knows by
1: now. Yes, yeah, so we'll see how the Gators look when, uh, when the season officially tips off next week. But again, lots of new faces. And lots of reasons to check out Chris's content on the team on FloridaGators.com uh, to learn more about them, to learn about the personalities, learn about what they can do on the court. A very, very different team this year, but obviously uh, that's a great place to turn uh, to turn attention to for Gator fans, uh, obviously, when, when football is not going as well as they would hope this time of year. Um, let's move on to our PAT, which is actually inspired by... Uh, by what's been happening in, in my life the last few weeks, I don't know if we talked about this, but I got married. I'm like you guys now, um, and what happens is you get married, you go on a honeymoon, and you try and go to some exotic destination, which during COVID times is somewhat limited. Uh, but we ended up going to Costa Rica for ten days, uh, which was beautiful. It was a lot of fun. Did you know stuff in the mountains? Did uh, zip lining, canyoning, rappelling off waterfalls. Then some time at the beach, just you know, a little little step away from a uh, from reality for, for just a bit. Uh, so it got me thinking, and I, I've not done a ton of international traveling, uh, but I'm curious for you guys at times that you have left the country, what are some of the most memorable places you've been to and the experiences that you've had there?
0: You know, when I was at UF, I ended up out of total randomness, having a roommate from Jakarta, Indonesia. Wow. And he became a, he, but he really did become a, a great friend and I can still remember I'd be busy here and he bonded with my parents because he was from another country. He wanted to know everything about America. He was just really inquisitive. So he would actually go to my house in Orlando and hang out with my parents for the weekend once in a while just to learn more about America while well, I had to do stuff up here. But so I went over and, uh, you know, spent about, uh, gosh, it was over two weeks over there. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting cultural experience because obviously it was, this was in, Late early 99, right after the Indonesian government overthrew President Suharto. And I know this is going way deep, but anyway, the country was in shambles. And I was very thankful that I had him as my guide. You know, it was nothing to go shopping and see soldiers and machine guns and back of trucks. I mean, it was a crazy time. But while we were there, we got out of the city and went into the Indonesian countryside, went down to Bali a flight down to Bali probably a little bit maybe like Costa Rica yeah so you combine the third world country that I saw in Jakarta with the mountains that I saw out in the country and then of course the tropical setting of Bali uh, it was just one of those trips I've always uh, and I want to go back uh, have him back he's been over here a couple of times since, since so we've seen each other but I need to get back over there but that was probably my favorite international trip and what made it unique for me was When you have someone local, like having him there, he obviously took helped me bridge the language barrier. So I got to experience a lot maybe that I normally wouldn't have if I was just staying in a nice hotel doing the tourist thing. So uh, I got to see some things that probably most Americans who maybe stop in Jakarta don't see. So that's what sticks out for me, guys.
2: My first job when I was at the Tampa Tribune, I was assigned to a bureau where there was a... uh also a guy there who was a local news writer, but he was also freelanced as a travel writer. And he would get all these trips um, offered to him to go on where he would, in exchange for him to, to write travel stories about. And at the time, I mean, I, he, there was one that he wanted to go on and could not go on. And he asked me if I wanted to go on it. It was a week in Ecuador, And it was, uh, three days in the, in the, in the Amazon rainforest, or excuse me, four days in the Amazon rainforest and three days in the capital city of Quito. And, you know, I'm 24 or 25 years old, never done anything like that before. And hell, I took it. And, um, I went down there and, you know, we stayed, stayed in Quito for a while. And one of the cool things that we did, I remember we got, we, we got on a train that went outside of town into the Andes mountains and it was like a scene out of a Western. We just walked out the back. I had a, it was in the morning. I had a beer in my hand. We climbed up the ladder and sat on the caboose as it rolled through the mountains. Um, Like a, like, like a half dozen of of us, right. There's like seven or eight of us, I think on this trip. And in addition to that, we also went into the, like I said, the Amazon rainforest and they call these things dugout canoes. They, chop down these gigantic cypress trees or whatever, hollow them out. And they take these things out onto a lake. This guy took us out on this lake and there was a dock in the middle of the lake this Lake Lemancoca is where it was called in, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And the guy, people were, it was hot and people say, can, can we go in the water? This was in December. It was still warm. Hmm. And I remember jumping in the water uh, off this dock and swimming and climbing back into this dugout canoe and what have you. And that night we go back to Lake Lehman and get in these dugout canoes. And we start out into the lake and he, he goes, let me show you something. He puts up a, a searchlight, like flat giant flashlight searchlight and hits the rakes it along, along the lake. And all we see are all these dots that are crocodile eyes wow oh, oh yeah it's the one that i doubt dove and swam around he goes, they, they, he goes no 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 they, they, they would not have bothered you they would not have bothered. You. Well, no, you give me let me decide that okay yeah, you let yeah. me decide if they're not gonna bother me or what have you but and these weren't just like crocodile they're big they're big big crocodiles some of them talking 11 12 13 feet that you could see swimming around that night or what have you but uh they, they don't worry too much about travelers insurance and stuff down there. And (laughs) because, because the laws are a little bit different in in Ecuador, at least they were back in, I believe, 1984. So, uh, that's my most exotic trip. And, uh, I look back on it now, there's some things probably I did on that trip that, that I probably wouldn't have done now, starting with diving into a a lake full of crocodiles, especially if I knew there were crocodiles in it.
1: Well, it's not the most uh, exotic of, of locales, but, uh, I know you guys will be in Columbia, South Carolina for Florida, South Carolina. Hopefully the start of a strong finish here in the the final third of the year. Make sure to check out their content on FloridaGators.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. And uh, hopefully next week we will be talking about a win. Thank you guys very much.
0: Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam.
1: It takes a special combination of swagger and skill to wear the number one for the orange and blue, with legends such as Percy Harvin, Lito Shepard, Jabbar Gaffney, Tony George, and more donning that iconic jersey. But you can't talk about that group without Kiwan Ratliff joining the conversation, as the Youngstown, Ohio native smashed records that still stand today during his four-year career that began at the turn of the century. Now the assistant director of player personnel on Dan Mullen's staff, Kiwan was just inducted into the Florida-Georgia Hall of Fame alongside Theatric Faison. So we knew it was the perfect time to turn back the clock and learn more about the journey of a Gator who was destined for the gridiron from day one.
3: Honestly, it's hard to describe anything before football because being the the son of a football coach, uh, I can remember my My older brother got started a little bit before I did. He was, of course, older than me. So my dad was his coach and I had to go to practice every day with my dad. So why not go out there and try to join the team? So as early as four years old, I was putting the uniform on and running around and and running laps and and doing calisthenics
1: pre-practice. What part of the game hooked you to that degree? Why did you immediately become so passionate about it at such an early age? uh there's there's no
3: one part of the game that i love more than the other parts i mean as a kid i would take shoe boxes and cut up football men to play on the on the <laughs> floor then I, I graduated to start lineup men with the dice i would line my guys up and roll the dice that's how many steps you got and that's you know how many yards you can move each play so i mean as far as just the love of the game it has been been there coming from within like i said i i I can't say why or where or when it happened, but ever since I can remember, that's all I ever wanted to do.
1: I feel like there, there's almost a a lore around Youngstown. I mean, there's I, Jim Tressel started at Youngstown. I think Urban's from Youngstown. I mean, there's this there's this this rich history of football, specifically from Youngstown, Ohio. Can you talk about the way that that football was really baked into the the culture and, and the world that, that you grew up in, specifically in Youngstown?
3: I mean, football is a way of life in Youngstown. I mean, it is what it is. So on, on any given Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you can go out to, to any high school, any park and catch some good games. And it is funny that you say that, that the Youngstown ties and and the Youngstown upbringing through the sport, honestly, the, the, my Youngstown ties is what led me to Gainesville. Coach Bob Stoops uh, played at Youngstown Cardinal Mooney with my dad back oh, in wow. the uh, the early 80s so i was very familiar with his family and he was very familiar with the last name and that's how i ended up at the university of florida was through my youngstown football ties Well,
1: wow. i didn't really i didn't know about bob stoops i mean there's there's so many ties to to youngstown even the ones that, that you don't even think about um so it was it was a coach stoops that was really on you during recruiting like how did you get how did you first get connected and, and start building that relationship with florida
3: It was honestly, I was I was being recruited by everybody in the Big Ten, being Ohio guy, and and those were the schools that I was looking at: Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Purdue. Those were the schools I was familiar with. Those were the schools that I seen every Saturday on TV. So naturally, those were the schools that I thought that I was going to attend for college. So it was, you know, it was maybe mid December, early December. uh, My football coach called me down to the office, to his coaching office. I went down he handed me the phone and, you know, at that time, house phone, school phone were the only way that you were going <laughs> to, become, you know, the recruiters and the colleges. So what a
1: time that was, right. They couldn't text <laughs> you. They couldn't, couldn't tag you on Twitter or anything.
3: Right. So they called me and I got on the phone and it was coach Bob Stoops. And he asked me a couple questions. I mean, it was a simple conversation that maybe lasted five minutes, if that. And he said, Hey, first question is, Hey, uh, uh, are you from Youngstown, Ohio? I said, yes, sir. He said, I see your last name is Ratliff. By any chance, do you know Chucky Ratliff? I said, yes, sir, that's my dad. <laughs> he said, okay, well, listen, son, if you're half as good as your dad was, the University of Florida is going to offer you a scholarship. Wow. Myself, Coach Daryl Dixon is going to come up to check you out next week, and you better not let me down.
1: And the rest is history. Wow. What did it take to get you to to leave the area? I mean, did you always did you always see yourself getting away from home for college or was it just, was Florida almost a, you know, an offer too good to, to refuse? Honestly,
3: I never really thought about leaving home or going to this place or that place for college. That never really crossed my mind. It was just playing a game that I love, but there was a few things that factored into my decision when Florida came in. And I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said there weren't things that factored in that and, One of the factors was I was one of the only people in the state of Ohio that had an offer from Florida. That was big to me because at that time, Ohio State was everything. And I can remember, you know, going to do interviews and going to camps and things. And if you didn't have an offer from Ohio State, then they didn't take you serious. So, you know, Ohio State was recruiting me. But I can remember a coach telling me that he thought I was a little too small to play in the big ten. So I kind of crossed them out in the back of my mind early in the recruiting game. And so I was open to leaving the state because as you know in Ohio, it's only one big time team in the state. Well now there's two. I gotta take that back since <laughs>
1: that's California. right. So, but that's at right.
3: that time real team in Ohio. So if I wanted to play real ball, it was probably gonna have to be outside the state.
1: Hmm. I meant to ask you this earlier, but you know, I, I feel like so many guys that, that I talk to, even today's players, especially, um, they always talk about when they were young and they were in the game. They they did everything, right? They a lot of them they played quarterback. They sometimes they'd be wide out. They'd be on on defense as well. Um, how did did you gravitate to being in the secondary? Was that something you instantly saw for yourself? How did you end up in that spot on on the field?
3: Honestly, uh, I I didn't take to it until I got to the NFL. Really, I mean, being recruited, I was looking at the schools that were going to allow me to play wide receiver. And my final three schools that I was really, really looking at was Michigan, Florida, and Purdue. Purdue, if I would have known that Drew Brees would have been there with me for two years, I probably would have had them a little bit higher than what they ended up being. But I thought Drew Brees would probably leave early. I would have one year with them. That wouldn't be a good fit. Michigan wanted me to be a DB. And then when Coach Spurrier came in and showed me his fun and gun offense, and I seen Jaquez Green and Travis McGriff and guys that were smaller than me actually excelling at the same position that I wanted to play, it was a no-brainer for me to come to Florida. But when I got to Florida, you know, they they thought that I could get on the field a little bit faster at DB. So they put me on the field early on at DB. In my mind, though, I still was a wide receiver. So all the way fast forward to my junior year when Coach Zuck comes in. Coach Zook sits me down and says, Hey, we want you to be the number one corner this year. Lito Shepard just left. We want you to fall around the number one guy. I went home, called my high school coach and my mom, and told him, Hey, get me out of here. <laughs> I went, this guy's crazy. He thinks that I'm a number one corner when this is my turn to be the number one receiver. Yeah. So I wanted to leave. I was ready to transfer. And, you know, Coach Ed Zahnbrecher, Coach uh, Zook, and Coach Larry Fedora. They called me in that next day. They sat me down and was like, hey, listen, stick around, stay with us, and we'll let you play both ways. And honestly, that was the main reason why I stayed during that time. And then junior, senior year, I kind of had, you know, pretty good years as a DB, got drafted. And once I got to the NFL, that's when I started really, really taking it serious that I was a DB. But honestly, mentally, I never bought into it until I started getting paid to do it. That's the motivation.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned playing for Coach Spurrier for uh, for the first part of your, your college career. I mean, what was that like? I was even thinking about you know recruiting. He wasn't your primary recruiter, but yeah, what is it like getting recruited by Steve Spurrier? I mean, what what do you remember about that? And any funny stories from that time?
3: I just remember you know at that time social media and all that wasn't big, wasn't popular. That wasn't you know you you didn't see things that was going on across the world. So I can remember. It was our holiday tournament. It was around Christmas. It might have been a couple of days before Christmas or a couple of days after Christmas. I can remember us having our basketball tournament, and we were for pre-game warmups. We were out, you know, warming up. We seen it was a pretty big crowd, and it was going to be a, a big showdown because it was a, a crosstown rival. You know, we go we go back in to take our warmups off and stuff, and we come back out. And as we're coming back out, Coach Spurrier is walking in. And when Coach Spurrier walked into the gym, you would have thought that a rock star walked in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know much about Florida. I can't sit up here and act like I just knew the history of Florida, being in Ohio in the mid-90s. I didn't. So I didn't know how loved and the recognition that Coach Spurrier would get in any building, in any city or any state that he went to across the country. And that right there made me start doing a little bit more research on Coach Spurrier. But when he came to my house and sat down, the one thing I remember is he never once told me how good I was. He never once told me, you know, we need you. He never once told me like, oh, guys like you are why I'm good. He showed me what he did. He showed me how he created plays for players. He showed me how he got our guys open and he let me know what he was. And that was the thing that I liked about about him, how confident he was and just the way he carried himself as a coach. That was the same mentality and mindset I had as a player. So I felt like we were a perfect fit.
1: You know, at that time, uh, the Gators were winning SEC championships seemingly every year in the national title conversation every year. And then suddenly at the midway point of your career, uh, Coach Spurrier leaves. And you know, one of the more shocking things that's happened probably in, in the last 25 years of, of college football history. Um, what was that like for, for you, your teammates, when Coach Spurrier left Uh, And then Coach Zook and a new staff came in. I mean,
3: it was it was devastating. I mean, Coach Spurs the reason why I can say probably all of us were at the University of Florida at that time. I mean, he was a coach that even if you weren't playing, you loved him. It was just his honesty. It was sometimes it was brutal, but it was he he was honest, you know. So he was a guy that that everybody loved. Everybody wanted to play for. Everybody would run through a brick wall for. And coming off of that one season, well, we felt like, you know, we were kind of underachievers. We felt like we should have been in the national championship that year, no doubt. We 9-11 and, and the Auburn game, you know, we had a couple couple hiccups along the road, but we knew the talent that we had. So coming back from that season, we had most of those guys coming back. We were big winners in the, the Orange Bowl that year. We, we beat the brakes off of a, a Maryland team who had just won ACC and were, you know, dominant on their side. So we were all excited to come back and get ready for the spring. So to, to come into that meeting and to hear Coach Barrier say those words, it was heartbreaking. So you've seen a lot of guys leave. You've seen a lot of, you know, recruits jump ship. So, you know, it was it was kind of tough. Then for us to hire a guy, Ron Zook, who a lot of us had never heard of before and mm-hmm. a lot of us weren't familiar with, it was kind of devastating because you came to play for Coach Barry. You came because... He was in, I think, seven out of 12 years. He was in the SEC championship. He was in the national championship twice. He finished in the top five countless times. So he was the coach that we all came to play for, and he left. So that kind of, you know, killed it and it also hurt Kozuk coming in because he had big shoes to fill with a big shadow over his head. And I believe he was set up for failure from the beginning. So it was a rough patch, but I'm happy that, that – me and my brothers and the guys that I came in with were able to, to kind of steer the ship, so to speak, and make sure that it didn't fall off tracks. Cause as you can see, coach Zooks, you know, one of his recruiting classes ended up winning the national championship ring under Urban Meyer. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned earlier when you became an upperclassman and your game, you know, went to another level. Uh, That's especially true with your senior year, right? You end up being SEC defensive player of the year. You break a whole bunch of records. Um, what was it that helped you unlock that, uh, you know, that that next level to where you became one of the the primary defensive players in in the country?
3: More than anything, it was two people. It, it was first off, it was Coach Strong. Coach Strong came in, taught me how to how to really break down film. He taught me how to really become a student of the game, and he gave me the confidence that I had on the offensive end, on the defensive end. So I mean, Coach Strong with There'll be times in games where he would pull us to the side on the sideline and say, what do I got to call for y'all to make a play? <laughs> you know, having a coach that, that was that cool and, and that that trusting in his players, it allowed me to go out and play that way. And then the second player was Gus Scott. I mean, I had my brother beside me that I could look over at Gus, give him a signal, and he know I'm going off script. And, <laughs> and he wouldn't blink an eye, he would have my back. So there was times where I think – he, we laugh about it to this day where, you know, I would always love to play on the other team's sideline because I would try to steal signals. So, you know, by the second quarter, I think I got all the signals. So I'm trying to jump every route and, and Gus would allow me to go ahead and be myself, let my hair down and, and do me. And he would have my back and erase all my mistakes. So having a player like that beside me and having a coach like that on the sideline are two, two of the biggest reasons why I took off the way I did my senior year.
1: Mm. I'm sure there's a lot of answers to this because, you, again, you, you had such an illustrious career. But what what moments stand out? Is it plays? Is it games? When you think about your four years on the field at Florida, what are the first things that, that come to mind?
3: Well, my the first thing that comes to mind at Florida is my first interception. Uh, you know, I got my first interception, although I, I always... You know, I I complain a lot because, you know, back in the day, these stats didn't count. So, you know, my stats that I had early in my career aren't on my stats like my first interception. I got in the Sugar Bowl against arguably what a lot of people call the most talented team ever in the Miami Hurricanes. So to be able to play as a freshman on that stage and to go out there and make a play when the whole world was watching, I got a million messages from former teachers and former classmates and everybody that, that saw it. That moment right there let me know that I was actually playing on a big stage. Then another moment that I, I had is uh, earlier that year, we won SEC championship. You know, honestly, coming in, like you said, with Spurrier, he was in the SEC championship just about every year. Mm-hmm. So I just expected it at that point, not knowing that you know all these years later, that would be my lone SEC championship ring. And then thirdly, another memory would be uh, my offensive touchdown. I got a chance to score against the team that I really thought that I was going to be playing for in Michigan, and then I actually got to score against somebody that grew up in Youngstown that I knew his family, he knew my family, and Marlon
1: Jackson. Mm. Always comes back, right? The ties always always brings it home. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, and, and ironically, uh, on that on that subject, when it's time for you to go to the NFL, uh, you end up returning relatively close to home and in, in Cincinnati with the Bengals. What did it mean to, to start your NFL career and be drafted by a team? Yeah. Not your backyard, but obviously you went a pretty far ways away for college. And then for your pro career, you're essentially back where it all started.
3: I mean, honestly, like, like now, like I said, now the hindsight is 2020, 20. but at the time it was just the next step in my life. I wasn't thinking twice about it. I was just going to play ball, but, Now that I think about it, when I was in school, my family got to see me play maybe once a year, if that. They would go to the Kentucky game if we played at Kentucky. If we played at Tennessee, at Vandy, those were about the closest games that they could get to. So you know, growing up and getting away from home allowed me to grow up and mature and become a man and learn how to do things on my own. But when I got a chance to actually, you know, live it out and see my dreams fulfilled. My family was there with me every step of the way because my mom was right in Columbus, which is an hour and a half away. Most of my family was in Youngstown, which is an easy drive and, and playing for the Bengals. We traveled up to Pittsburgh, which is an hour drive. We traveled up to Cleveland, which is an hour drive. We played against Baltimore, which is close enough to drive. So majority of my games were close enough for all my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, everybody to get a chance to come out and see me play finally being that I was all the way in Florida for
1: college. yeah, And and once you you, you leave Florida and you talked about some of the, the relationships there and, and you mentioned specifically Gus Scott, I'm curious, once you go to the NFL, once you move on and start getting further away from your time in Gainesville, which players still stayed the closest to you? Which of your teammates um, were, were just still there and, and maybe even are there today almost 20 years later?
3: Well, I mean, Gus, that's my brother. That's that's family. Now that's my son's godfather. Hmm. You know, he had been through a lot in life now. You know, that was my roommate on the roads. That was my, my brother in the back end. So I see Gus all the time. You know, I see Kelvin Kite all the time. That was my roommate in college. I talked to him on a regular basis. I, I talked to Lito Shepard. I talked to Alex Brown. I talked to Brandon Siler. It's, hmm. it's so many guys that I keep in contact with being all the way down here from Ohio you know, a lot of these guys took me in. A lot of these guys took me home for holidays. A lot of these guys took me, you know, when we just had weekends off, took me home with them and their moms and dads cooked for me and sheltered me, took me in. So, I mean, now, you know, I I consider myself a Floridian. I've been here for more than half my life. So, you know, and Duval is like a second home to me because of Gus and Lito and those guys and, and the Fred Taylors and those guys that's down there in Jacksonville. I mean, it's, it's a brotherhood when you come here. They say that, but I'm living proof that, you know, you can move halfway across the country and find family here in Gainesville.
1: Hmm. The time comes for everybody where you you got to hang up the cleats, right? And, and I feel like it's usually not an easy process for guys. It takes you know, some wrestling with it. Uh, I'm curious for you, after, you know, you played uh, roughly six, seven years in the NFL and, you know, went to a bunch of places, what was it that told you, now is the time to to move on i mean it was just mentally
3: mentally honestly you, you get to a point to where you know you you're on the team and, and you're not and you're on the team the off season you don't know if you're gonna get picked up it was one of those things where mentally i kind of seen the writing on the wall to play seven years in the nfl and never be a starter that's pretty big i mean you know I, every Every single training camp, I had to go and fight those young boys off and, and earn my spot. So, you know, I knew that year eight, year nine, year 10 was going to be a little bit more tougher because, you know, that that salary went up, that minimum salary goes up every year. So to be able to hold those guys off and not be a solidified starter is pretty tough, tough doing. So I, my kids started getting a little older, you know, and my body started aching a little more too from a little bit of nothing. <laughs> So, you know, right. it was things where your body and your mind kind of let you know that, hey, it's about time to start moving on to something else. And I felt like I had did enough to where I was satisfied with my playing days.
1: Hmm. Were there any things you really took away from it that, that were impactful? Or does do the college memories far outweigh the, the pro memories? I know because, you know, when you play for a bunch of different teams. You probably don't have a set of legions anywhere like you do when you've got a school you played four years at and, and you're connected to forever?
3: Well, the, the the first thing you learn when you get to the NFL is it's a business. I mean, you know, it, it, no, nothing is personal. I mean, you can love a coach, a coach can love you, you can love the owners, you can love the city, you can love the team. And the fit just isn't right because of the business. So once you figure that out, loyalties are to the business. So, you know, like at that point, I, like you said, I didn't have any loyalties, or I don't have any ties to where I say, oh, I'm a, a Bengal, or I'm a, a Steeler, or, or I'm a Coke, because all of those guys were loyal to me because they cut the check. So mm-hmm. I love all three of those organizations. <laughs> Same. But if I was to have to say which one, it would have to be the Bengals because that's where I was drafted. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys took a chance on me first. Those guys made my dream a reality. And it doesn't hurt that they were in Ohio. But it's not the same feelings and it's not the same vibes as I do have for University of Florida.
1: Hmm. So when when you retired, did you know what you were going to do? Did you have to kind of go through a process to find your way to what was next? What do you remember about that time?
3: Honestly, I'm one of the rare guys that that kind of laid out what I wanted to do when I was done. I mean, as I was playing, I was blessed and I was fortunate enough to get more than one contract. So For my second contract, I made it up in my mind that, hey, I'm going to put money to the side so that when I'm done, I could be kind of a stay-at-home dad for a little while. So I could actually be around my kids. Playing, you know, you're traveling, you're moving, you're always on the go. You don't get to be at home much. So, you know, I wanted to be at home. I wanted to see my kids' first day of school. I wanted to see my kids, you know, go Halloween trick-or-treating with them. I wanted to do some of those things. So I put some money to the side to where... I had, you know, a little bit of time to adjust and reevaluate my life and see what I wanted to do when I was done. So I knew what I wanted to do was something football related. So as soon as I retired, I got, went back and started just pouring into the youth. I started my own nonprofit. I started my own, you know, my college bus trip to where I would take kids to different schools. Just let them see that these things are reality. These things are right in front of you. This is not a dream. This is. Not something that it can't happen. This is something that you gotta go out and make happen. So I started doing that. And I, I started to get into a little bit of coaching and doing a little interning. I interned with the dolphins a little bit. I was just trying to get my foot, keep my foot in the water somehow. And then my son said something to me that kind of, you know, was kind of a gut blow. Uh he was one day we were riding back. I, I had a organization that I ran called Rat Pack with a lot of young boys that, you know, I was working with through football. And I had just gave one of my, you know, my infamous speeches after practice guys would always say, come on coach, not today, but you know, I always (laughs) gave my little speeches and after one of my speeches, my son was in the car with me. He said, daddy, he said, I hear you always talk about, you know, these guys not letting the, the universities take advantage of them and get their paper. You didn't graduate. And right then it was like, oh man, it struck a nerve. Like, all right, I gotta gotta lead by example. So that was I believe that was twenty seventeen. So twenty seventeen I re enrolled in school, went back to school, got my degree, and then the rest is history.
1: Mm. That's wild. So what was it like going back to school? In my mind, I'm thinking about like Rodney Dangerfield back to school, right? Like you're you're the old guy coming in. Everyone's like, "Who is this old guy here?" But I mean, a lot of guys have done it. I think Ahmad Black did it recently. I want to say that that Percy may have done it as well. A lot of guys do come back and and finish that that mission. What was that like? Almost, I guess, you know, 15 years later. What was it like going back to classes on campus after all that time and and all those life experiences you had had?
3: Honestly, what people fail to realize is with all those life experiences and growing and living out my dreams and and having everything that I had at that point going back to school, for the first time ever, I actually wanted to be a student. Hmm. So school was actually easy when I went back. I mean, I actually applied myself this time. I actually tried. I actually gave a damn. Uh, I mean, it was (laughs) like when I was growing up, I did school well enough so that nobody would say anything to me about school. I was mm. a C student. I'd get a few B's in here at the easy classes. It's the hard class to make sure I get C's. And I didn't take books home. I didn't take book bags home. I didn't study. I would prep for my tests in the period before. So coming back now, I actually applied myself. I actually did work a week before it was due. I actually read the chapters. I actually studied. I actually did the modules. I actually... Participated in the class projects and those type of things. So school was easy the second time that I went back because I actually cared about it and I, I knew the end game and I wanted to make it to that end game. So I mean once I applied myself and like I said I was a lot more old I was a lot more mature I was grown I am sitting there doing homework beside my son so it was <laughs> you know,
1: I'm not, I'm I was focused and nothing was going to stop me at that point. Hopefully you guys were doing different homework at that point. <laughs>
3: Honestly, you'd be surprised. He's pretty smart. He was doing similar math to me.
1: Wow. Okay. So, how did the opportunity come to to become part of the staff? Because you know, it seems like in recent years a lot of guys have come back home. You know, Vernell Brown comes to mind as well. Um, how how did that come about and and get you to the position you're in today?
3: Well, it's funny you just mentioned Vernell because Vernell was 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 key in that. Uh, Me and Vernell had teamed up, and I mentioned Rat Pack a little earlier. We were working together with Rat Pack and the Villages slash Orlando. So, you know, we had just come together. We had been working together for about a year. And then we were supposed to be doing a few other things uh, coming up that that year. And then one day he gave me a call and said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to UF. And I'm like, oh, man. So that kind of derailed the plans that we had. But fast forward about six months later, he gave me a call and was like, hey, they want you to come home. What do we got to do? And that's when we went to work and, and started figuring out the what's, the why's, and the how's. And I ended up here about three months later.
1: Hmm. And what is it for, for people that they hear your title and they may not know what it means, what is it that, that you do? What, what's the impact that you try to have day to day for the program?
3: Yeah, a lot of times, like for the most part, it's the younger people who don't really know what it is that I do. The older people can pretty much, you know, read between the lines and know what it is. So for the younger guys, I always explain it to them because I know majority of them, especially recruits, I know the majority of them play the video game. They play the NCAA video game. I tell them that when you're playing the NCAA and at the end of the week when you got to make those phone calls and you got to do the recruiting and that part of figuring out what guys you want to go after and who you like more and who gets an hour, who gets 20 minutes, that's pretty much my job. My hmm. job is to break down film, figure out the guys that fit here, figure out, you know, what they like, what they don't like by talking to them, getting to know them, and then passing that information over to the coaches and letting the coaches, you know, figure out
1: which ones are actually fit for the program. Hmm. couple of final things for you. Um, in, in terms of, you know, college football today versus when you were playing and even being at Florida, right, Florida in the early 2000s versus Florida 20 years later, what what's the same and what's different? Because there's a lot of things that stay the same. That's why people love college football. Um, but inevitably, there, there's also you know a, a sea of change. What what do you think about when when you look at that? I mean,
3: first off, the first thing I
1: know, this is coming from a little guy. You might
3: not expect this, but the food, the food is. <laughs> To eat is amazing like they got chefs and they got you know four or five meals a day they got money on their car to go eat when i was at school we went right across the street to the dining hall three <laughs> meals a day right over there so i ate a whole bunch of flat cardboard pizza and, yeah. and hard frozen fries so you know the food is told is night and day nowadays then i mean right off the bat i'm gonna say to jordan because i'm a sneaker head so these guys <laughs> get to walk around with this this jump man on their on their chest and on their pants and on their shoes you got at least two
1: jump men on you right now that i can see
3: oh yeah no i gotta i'm i'm gonna keep it on me i'm excited <laughs> to and representative so you know just little things like the, the gloves and the cleats see i'm i'm not hard to please and you know it means it, you give me give me a nice wardrobe you give me some <laughs> nice food, i'm good so those two are the two biggest things to me to change as, as far as just around here like we, we have some things in the making as far as facilities and things like that go. So it'll be a big difference come this time next year. But right now, the two main things that I see is the food and the gear.
1: What hasn't changed? What, what stays the same and will probably continue staying the same far into the future? The academic side. Uh, you walk
3: over on the academic side, you know, most of those people were here in this building when I was here wow. and that's what I mean, we're now a top five university, a uh, public university as far as academics go. And it's a lot of those guys that that can be patted on the back for that. So those, the, most of those people are still sitting in the same seats that they were sitting in when I was here, if not elevated and promoted.
1: Hmm. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because uh, while you've been in the UF Hall of Fame for almost 10 years now, Uh, You just went into the Florida-Georgia Hall of Fame. And I feel like there's some fans who may not even know there is specifically a Florida-Georgia Hall of Fame, but it speaks to the significance of that game and and the meaning that it carries for both schools. So what did it mean to you to receive that honor? And and what did you remember about playing in that game?
3: I mean, right off the bat, being from Ohio, Ohio State-Michigan is one of the biggest rivalries in the world. In the Mm -hmm. country that everybody talk about. So, you know, that was the the big game that I knew about growing up. So coming to UF, I didn't know much about Georgia, let alone the Georgia-Florida rivalry. So running out that tunnel for the first time and seeing that stadium split half and half and having the feeling of a home and away game all in one was something totally different. Like I I didn't know what to expect, and it was way bigger than anything I could have expected. So just knowing the significance of the the SEC East race and and most of the time went through there, went through Jacksonville, made that game even more special. So, I mean, I just, I was so excited to hear that I was being inducted into that hall of fame just because I know that the guys that, that played in that game, I know all the guys that, that have come before me and come after me. And, And for the most part, you make a few plays in that game, and you get your name called, and you're one of the, the key playmakers in that game, you're going to play on Sundays. So to say that I'm in the Hall of Fame of, of that game with those two prestigious universities was, was a huge honor.
1: Well, Q1, congratulations on that honor. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Gator Nation is, is very happy to have you now and hopefully for a long time to come.
3: I appreciate you having me, man. Go Gators.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.